Welcome to Silicon Valley Trends, a free podcast series published by Silicon Valley Business School. I'm your host, David Smith. At Silicon Valley Business School, we provide affordable, real-world online business education to everyone, everywhere, and guide entrepreneurs towards success with their startup ventures. If you've listened to some of my earlier podcasts, you'd realize by now that investors and entrepreneurs don't have the same classes of stock in startup companies. Entrepreneurs and employees get common stock. Investors get preferred stock. If stock is a pizza, common stock is like a bare, tasteless crust, where the preferred stock held by investors has all sorts of delicious toppings. In this podcast, I'll describe the toppings investors get on their preferred stock pizzas, And you'll learn how this affects the balance of power between investors and entrepreneurs. Before I go any further, I want to explain that these podcasts are intended to help entrepreneurs and inventors understand how the system works. And you might find that the system seems to be somewhat unfair, with the balance of power squarely in favor of the investors. That's just the way it is. I'm not saying that the system should change or that the investors are taking advantage of entrepreneurs. In fact, if I were investing in a startup, I'd probably be tempted to adopt the same terms we'll discuss today. The terms that venture capital investors all over the world seem to adopt as standard. However, as an entrepreneur, the preferred stock terms required by essentially all venture capital funds have deterred me from raising outside finance for my own startups for many years now. So be warned, the system has been designed over the years by creative lawyers to protect investors and give them all the power when it comes to making significant decisions for their startup ventures. Don't forget, there have been a lot of crazy entrepreneurs out there. So it's not surprising that the investors that are putting up the cash have actually created these um, structures to protect them and give them the power and take the reins from the entrepreneurs. So, although preferred stock venture investments are not going away, I did actually come up with an alternative structure for startup financings called Startup Bonds. And I created a website at startupbonds.com explaining how it would work. Essentially, it's a convertible note, a loan that converts to stock when the company is sold. Essentially, the entrepreneur keeps the full control of the company until, uh, but the investor gets to cash out when the company's sold. So it's an interesting uh, alternative that's more friendly to the entrepreneur. And you can check it out at startupbonds.com. And later in this podcast, we'll be talking to Mark Cameron White, a Silicon Valley lawyer who's negotiated hundreds of venture capital investment deals. And we'll get Mark's insights into what he's currently seeing in the market. But before that, let me explain some of the basics, like liquidation preference, board seats, veto rights, anti-dilution rights, participation rights, drag-along rights, co-sale rights, 
and redemption rights. This is all fun stuff, I know. It might sound complicated, but I'll make it understandable. And I recommend you carry on listening if you think you might want to raise finance from venture capital investors at any point in the future. These are things you're going to need to understand if you're going to be one of the small percentage of entrepreneurs who's able to survive startup and cash out. So, let me start with a scenario. Imagine you have a startup. When you formed the company, you owned all the shares. But when raising $10 million in finance, you sell 25% of the shares to venture capital investors, leaving you owning 75%. The startup has no debt, and you received an offer to acquire the company from a large corporation for $20 million. Recap. You have an offer of $20 million, you own 75%, the investor owns 25%, there's no debt. So question one. How much would you receive for your shares if the deal goes ahead and you sell for $20 million? Question two, how would you make the decision? Whether to sell or not? Right, for question one, if you figured that you'd collect $15 million from a $20 million sale of the company because you hold 75% of the shares, you'd be wrong. In fact, $15 million isn't even close to what you'd receive. For question two, if you think you'd have the power to make the decision to sell or not to sell because you hold the majority of the shares, you'd be wrong about that as well. Don't worry if you get these questions wrong, you're not alone. Most entrepreneurs are unaware of how venture capital investments work until they've gone through the process of selling a company. In fact, many seasoned entrepreneurs have contacted me after reading my Zero to IPO book and explained that even having raised venture capital financing several times, they'd been blissfully unaware of the fact that a 75% share of a venture-backed company did not translate to a 75% share of the proceeds when the company is sold. And they actually believed they had some control on account of their majority shareholding. Now let me explain how venture capital investments really work in Silicon Valley and the tech sector. As I mentioned before, the investors get preferred stock and the founders get common stock. It's called preferred stock because the investors get preferential rights over and above the rights held by the common stockholding founders. So here we go with the pizza toppings enjoyed by venture capital investors. Let's start with my favorite, liquidation preference, also referred to as participating preferred. This means that the investors get their money back or multiples of their money back when the company is sold, before sharing any of the proceeds, the remaining proceeds, with the common stockholders. Let's say your startup has raised $10 million 
with a 2x liquidation preference. This means that the first $20 million of any acquisition price goes to the investors before any remaining proceeds are shared with you as the entrepreneur and the other holders of common stock. Of course, this means that if the company is sold for $20 million or less, all the funds go to the investors. You might sell your company for $20 million, but you receive nothing. And the same goes for your co-founders, employees, and all the other holders of common stock. If the company was sold for $30 million in our example, $20 million would go to the investors as a result of their $10 million investment at a 2x liquidation preference. And then you get to share in the remaining $10 million. So if you hold 75% of the shares in common stock, in this scenario you get $7.5 million, or 75% of $10 million. 10 million remaining after the investors have taken their 20 out of the 30 million purchase price. Seven and a half million dollars in your pocket ain't too shabby. But imagine if the liquidation preferences were higher. Some entrepreneurs I've interviewed have found that they've signed up to liquidation preferences of 10x or even higher. Under those arrangements, the preferred stockholders get the lion's share of the proceeds when the company is sold. And it's very difficult for the entrepreneurs and employees to get anything at all. With a 10x liquidation preference and a $10 million investment, the first $100 million of any company sale will go to the investor. So liquidation preference is something you really want to negotiate when bringing in investment funds from venture capital investors or any investors, as they're all going to want preferred stock and they're all going to want a liquidation preference. This is like having mozzarella cheese on your pizza. It's a standard topping and you're going to have difficulty finding a pizza without it. Although entrepreneurs and common stock holding employees are generally forced to live with the two-tiered preferred stock common stock structure, Wall Street investors are not. So when the company goes through an IPO and the shares are floated on the stock markets, the preferred stock is swapped for common stock and the investors lose the fancy toppings on their pizza. Common stock is traded on the public markets and any preferred stock is swapped out for common. So we figured out why 75% of $20 million is not $15 million or anything close to $15 million, thanks to liquidation preference. Now let's talk about how the decision is made to sell the company. With veto rights, investors get to veto transactions like a sale of the company or the raising of finance through the sale of stock. Regardless of how many shares of common stock you hold, or how many seats you control on the board of directors, with a veto right, a minority investor gets to veto the most important decisions, such as selling the company. You could hold a million shares, and the investor could hold just one share of preferred stock with a veto right, and together with 
drag along rights and co-sale rights we'll talk about in a moment. It's the investor that has control over when, how, and at what price the company is sold. And it's the investor that gets to control how important decisions such as raising funds are decided. When it comes to electing a board of directors, you'll probably learn in law school that the shareholders get to vote to elect directors. What they don't teach you is that preferred stockholders negotiate rights to elect their own directors regardless of how many shares they hold. Preferred stock is usually issued in series. Series A stock is issued to the first investors and the Series A preferred stockholders get to elect one or two directors to the board. They typically place one or more of the venture capital fund's partners to the board of directors. This usually gives the investors control of the board, regardless of how the common stockholders vote. The Series B investors can get their own board seats, and so can the Series C investors. Under Delaware law, and this is one of the main reasons why investors require startups are incorporated in Delaware, so long as the common stockholders get to elect at least one seat on the board, the investors can take control of the board of directors and essentially take full control of the company, away from the founders and management. And there's little the common stockholders can do about it. In theory, the shareholders get to elect the board of directors, but in practice, the preferred stockholders get to elect their own board seats and they get to allocate themselves sufficient seats so that the founders lose control of the board. Now let's talk about dilution of shareholding when new investors come into the company. Question three. You hold 7.5 million shares and Investor One holds 2.5 million shares. The company has 10 million shares in total. If the company sells 1 million shares to Investor Two, how much is your shareholding going to be diluted? In other words, if you held 75% of the company before Investor Two came in, what would your percentage be afterwards? Okay, so if you calculate that your shareholding will drop by about 10%, from 75% to 68%, you'd be wrong once again. You're probably thinking that you'd hold 7.5 million shares out of a total of 11. That's 68%. And you'd be right there, but you'd also be wrong. Let me explain. You need to understand two things. Firstly, the investors often write into the terms that the dilution is not shared evenly among shareholders. An investor buying 25% of your company may insist that it retains a 25% stake and is not diluted when new investment funds are raised. Secondly, your investor has preferred stock and you have common stock. The investor has rights to convert preferred stock to common stock 
and it can manipulate the conversion rate. If the conversion rate is one to one, one share of preferred stock converts to one share of common stock. If the conversion rate is one to two, one share of preferred stock will convert to two shares of common stock. What happens with these anti-dilution rights is that the conversion rate is adjusted when new shares are sold to incoming investors. The old investors are not issued with new common stock when the new investor comes in, but the effect is virtually the same. The investor's preferred stock gets to buy more common stock at IPO or whenever the investor decides to trigger the conversion. The anti-dilution rights can result in the investors getting unproportional amounts of common stock when new rounds of financing are raised. If you invite a new investor to share your pizza, don't be surprised if your share of the pizza suddenly gets surprisingly, shockingly small. The investor's anti-dilution rights essentially mean that the dilution resulting from new investors is at the expense of the founders and the other holders of common stock. There are a few different formulas that are widely adopted that calculate how the dilution is shared among the investors and founders. One that's particularly spiteful on founders is called the ratchet. Yes, it sounds like a medieval form of torture and the full ratchet is particularly painful on founders. The name of a formula that spreads the dilution more evenly is called the weighted average. With reasonable investors, there's some room for negotiation when it comes to anti-dilution rights. When we talk to Mark in a moment, we can find out how he negotiates these terms when representing his startup clients. Where the anti-dilution rights can mean an existing investor is essentially given new stock when a new investor comes to the table, participation rights require the old investor to buy new shares if it wants to avoid dilution. It's a pay-to-play agreement where you might say to investor one, sure, you can maintain a 25% stake in the company when we raise finance from new investors. But to do so, you have to buy new shares on the same terms as the new investors. Investors usually will ask for rights to participate in future rounds of funding on terms that are at least equal to those offered to incoming investors. Again, the devil is in the details here as participation rights can be structured in different ways. But as an entrepreneur, I'd usually try to negotiate terms that require the investors to inject more money if they want to be issued with more shares. Anti-dilution rights and participation rights are triggered when the company raises new rounds of funding. Drag-along and co-sell rights are triggered when the company is sold. The veto rights I mentioned earlier give the investor the right to block a sale of the company above the wishes of the board, the founders, and the majority of the shareholders. Blocking a sale is one thing. Approving a sale is another. 
Dragalong writes, enable the investor to force the founders and the other holders of common stock to sell, if that's what the investor wants to do. When the investor decides to sell, the other shareholders are forced to sell as well. Regardless of how many shares of common stock you hold, Dragalong rights enable the preferred stockholding investors to make a decision to sell the company and drag you along with the sale. You might be kicking and screaming, I don't want to sell, but it's not going to help you. You're forced to sell alongside the investors with Dragalong rights. In the event that an investor doesn't have complete control of when and at what price the company is sold, perhaps in a scenario where there have been several rounds of financing and several series of preferred stock, the investor will get co-sale rights, which means that the investor gets to sell its shares along with other shareholders if any shares are to be sold. The investors are certainly not going to be left out. As a founder, once you've raised funding from a venture investor, you'll be restricted from selling any of your shares. In the unlikely event that you get an offer from someone to buy some or all of your shares, you'd usually be required to offer the company and your investors the opportunity of buying your shares on the same terms as the buyer. The investors and the company usually have a first right of refusal. More accurately, first and second rights of refusal. If the investors decide they don't want the company to buy your shares and they don't want to buy your shares for themselves and they agree to allow you to sell to the buyer, these co-sale rights would kick in, giving the investors the rights to sell their shares along with yours. Now we've covered what happens when new investors come in and when the company is sold there are other scenarios that the investors envisage and for which they write protections into their preferred stock investment terms. This pizza has lots of fancy toppings. Let's look at the scenario where the investor has second thoughts after injecting money into your company. Well, redemption rights allow the investor to take the money back. Yes, they can often strip the cash out of the company if they get cold feet. Where an investor is likely to insist on liquidation preference and other rights we discussed in this podcast. Redemption rights are not found in all VC term sheets. So this is something that is negotiable and you want to negotiate out of the deal if you can. As you've discovered, the lawyers creating these preferred stock investment agreements for investors have been very thorough, constructing terms that protect investors and provide them with superpowers when it comes to making decisions and calling the shots. So the question that comes to mind is, who's representing and protecting the interests of the entrepreneur? That's a good question. In a venture capital investment deal, there's always a lawyer representing the startup and a lawyer representing the investor. The issue is that the lawyer representing the startup is not representing the entrepreneur, the founder. If you hire a lawyer to represent your startup, 
you have to understand that the lawyer is not representing you as the founder and is not necessarily acting in your own personal interests. The best thing to do is to hire a lawyer to represent your interests when it comes to venture capital's financings, mergers, acquisitions, and any major transactions that affect your interests in the company. This is what smart entrepreneurs do, but it's not very common. Usually, the company founder hires the lawyer to represent the company, doesn't pay much attention to the terms of the deal, and only later on discovers the details of the liquidation preference, anti-dilution rights, veto rights, and all the other preferential rights held by the investors. So now they have some familiarity with the luxury toppings that investors get on their pizzas. Let's find out what toppings are most popular today in Silicon Valley. Mark Cameron White is the founder of the White Summers Law Firm and has negotiated over 500 venture capital financings, mostly representing entrepreneurs. Okay, well, thanks, Mark. Um, so what are you seeing in terms of liquidation preferences in the market today? So financings are... Um, becoming very simple. Uh, the, uh, the trend is that uh, venture capital funds, uh, institutional angel funds, uh, and even individual angels are trying to uh, follow the same standard documents. So if there's a series seed financing, there'll be series seed template uh, agreements uh, that are used. Or if it's a, a series A or series B preferred financing, which is, which is an institutional financing, led by uh, venture capital investors, they'll use NVCA or National Venture Capital Association documents. So there's not a lot of variation uh, in the way financings are done. And rather than financings becoming more complex over time, they're becoming more simple. And uh, virtually all um, uh, serial investors follow the same template documents and the same standards within those documents. And that relates to this issue of liquidation preference. And there's really two flavors that you find in the market. Either it's a, it's a 1x participating preferred or a 1x non-participating preferred. Uh, the, the 1x refers to return of money to the investor, uh, which, which mm -hmm. comes out in advance yeah. on a uh, sale of the company. Uh, and the participation relates to whether or not the remaining proceeds on a sale are distributed pro rata to the investors or not. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, the trend line now is non-participating preferred rather than participating preferred. I still, it's probably still it's 50-50 between the two, but the funds that are trying to, to uh, position themselves as being investor friendly, and just about every venture fund is trying to do that, um, uh, would take the non-participating um, uh, approach. And, and the reason they would do this is because their upside really is on the participation on proceeds if there is an attractive acquisition with proceeds uh, uh, sufficient to pay everybody off. Um, and really the one X is for the downside where the company's done very poorly. It's an asset sale only, which has no, uh, no value attributed to the company as a going concern, or it's an aqua hire. And so there's nothing of value in the company. So that's sort of the, 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 the main standard, the um, multiple return on liquidity preference that you saw in years past don't happen anymore. like a two X or a three X return oh, right. uh, that, uh, that, was uh, was the case maybe 20 years ago during the uh, the bubble 
uh, also probably in the, in the brief period after the uh, uh, 2008 uh, financial crisis, but uh, uh, those times have passed. I would say that uh, it is sometimes the case with more mature companies that are doing mezzanine rounds, uh, particularly funded by East Coast institutional investors, you might see a two or three X, not a three X, I think that's unheard of, or like a 1.5 or a two X. But again, that's very unusual. What you do find in East Coast deals on liquidity preference is a, uh, a compound dividend that gets added to the investment made by investors. And that all is paid on a sale of the company. So the way that would work is if, uh, if an investors put in, let's say $10 million, uh, there might be a, a term uh, for a, an annual compounded dividend of 8% which is uh, kind of dangerous for the company because that adds up real fast to, to serious money. And it might be the case that the preference then ends up being like 15 million or 20 million over a period of years because um, it just adds up. Uh, and that is more of an, a, a private equity term uh, that has found its way into some mezzanine stage venture financings. Uh, so, you know, you've got to read the term sheet carefully to make sure that compounded dividend is not part of the liquidity preference uh, uh, payout. Um, you know, so that's sort of the range of, uh, of, of the ways that this is normally structured. Wow. So um, just um, um, explain again the difference between participating and the non-participating preferred and why people are choosing each one. Participation relates to the distribution of proceeds after the preference amount, which is the return of funds to the investor is paid. Uh, to give an example, let's say the company has sold for $50 million, and let's say that there's been $10 million invested in the company. The preference return of investment is $10 million. So the question is, on, on the $40 million that remains, who gets that? Does it all go to the common? Does it go to the common and the preferred proportionate to their, uh, to their ownership in the company? Participation yeah. would say that common and preferred um, share proportionally in that $40 million. If it's non-participating, the 40 million just goes to the common, which is not the investors typically. So, 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 uh, uh, and, and then you can ask the question, so why would it, an investor ever agree to give up a participating right? Hmm. And the answer is because uh, uh, the investor could easily uh, convert its preferred shares into common shares, give up its, its return of investment and get the participation um, actually on 50 million, because what happens is the return to the investors goes away in my example. So then you've got a pool of 50 million rather than 40 million and they get their pro rata of that, which is a much higher number. And the reason they would, they would agree not to do, to get both, both being their liquidity preference and the participation right is because there's sort of a race to commonality among uh, uh, venture investors. What they want to do is get the best deals the way investors make money is not on negotiation of terms. It's investing in great companies that are going to do really well. And the great companies typically are known early stage and there's a competition of investors to get into those deals. Mm -hmm. And the way you get in is you try to be as, as founder friendly as you possibly can be. And so a one X non-participation is among several terms where, you know, you give it up in order to get into the company because you make more downstream later on because it's a great, it's a great company. Those are the trade-offs you'd make. Wow. Okay. Interesting. I didn't realize that all this standardization been, has been uh, taking place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
that's that's a good positive move and it sounds like you know one x uh, liquidation preference is much more reasonable than the things we used to see in the past uh, that's correct that's right yeah okay then so um how about some of the other uh, terms you're seeing in these uh, in these term sheets how about uh, things like what types of decisions do the investors get to veto with the veto rights so that's a uh, <clears throat> it's a contested term uh, in financings and it's kind of sort of i mean it's it's uh, it's 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 not it's not the kind of term where the company would walk away from a financing investors might actually because they uh, they want to uh, have an ability to control their investment um, again on the theme of of uh, sort of standard terms and making financings uh, more simple in us uh, uh, financings where you don't have international syndicates typically the list of uh, veto rights is quite contained. I mean, there are fundamental rights that you find in any set of investment documents and they, they, uh, uh, they, they follow a corporate law which uh, 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 provides that uh, uh, preferred shares or different classes of shares have rights uh, uh, of approval on matters that affect them directly. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, uh, that's it's embedded in, uh, in California law and Delaware law. Uh, in the uh, corporate law of most uh, most most states, and so those rights relate to a change of the uh, terms in the certificate of incorporation, which would, is required every time you do a financing. So, uh, veto rights would relate basically to authorizing uh, and creating a new uh, uh, set of uh, shares uh, uh, with terms that are equal to or senior to the existing shares. Uh, second veto that standard is uh, is uh, having approval rights in the event of a sale of the company, a change of control, uh, defined broadly to uh, uh, to incorporate to include any business combination, basically, or sale of substantially all of the assets. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, dividend rights, uh, giving out special uh, dividend uh, um, uh, allocations or distributions. Uh, typically, investors want to approve or not approve that uh, themselves. Uh, uh, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the list actually is usually quite uh, longer than that, uh, but but focusing on on uh, matters such as changing the size of the board and the membership of the board, or taking on a debt in the company above a certain threshold uh, uh, amount, um, uh, really control features that relate to the operations of the company. Mm -hmm. uh, now you kind of take the uh, the list that you find in U.S. Uh, domestic uh, financings, and you compare that to overseas uh, financings with international syndicates in U.S. companies, where you've got European investors or investors from Asia. And typically, the uh, the list of control uh, uh, veto rights would be much longer. It's more granular, uh, digs deeper down into the company, and and essentially uh, you've got investors. Uh, that are reviewing the, uh, you know, at, at some stage, some of the, the issues that typically in a U.S. company you would uh, delegate to the, to the management team and not have investors uh, uh, be involved. Um, and so the, so the negotiation uh, that, uh, that companies tend to follow is they would allow for board approval to substitute veto rights for uh, stockholders. So if the requirements of approval are too burdensome on the company, one way to navigate around that in negotiations is to not give those veto rights to stockholders, but rather pass them over to the board and having one of the preferred uh, directors on the board participate in approval of whatever that matter may be. 
So it gets a little bit complex. You kind of take it uh, sort of case by case and what, what's the veto right and approval that's required. Uh, and so uh, you take each matter uh, separately and, you, and you, on the company side, you try to determine whether or not you can live with it or not. And will it be a burden to the company? And typically, if it is, you try to negotiate it out or you move it over to a director vote rather than a stockholder vote. Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you're still um, not seeing situations where the investors uh, fail to get the rights to veto a significant transaction like a sale of the company or raising a new finance. I mean, generally, no, they... they, no. they they no. can veto those rights. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, e even even in in uh, founder friendly financing documents, uh, there are certain fundamental rights that investors want. I mean, they they don't want the company to do um, any financing that will be dilutive to the preferred with rights that are stacked on top of them with future investors. Uh, they just won't do that. Um, uh, I've never seen it done. Quite honestly, you 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 sometimes see it done. Uh, in European financings where investors come in and they buy common stock rather than the preferred, which never happens in the U.S., but it sometimes does in Europe for a variety of reasons. But then you've got rights given to those stockholders in a shareholder agreement and not embedded into the rights of the shares themselves. And so, you know, quite honestly, in 10 out of 10 cases, uh, from what we see, there are veto rights given to, uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the stockholders. Mm -hmm. And the negotiation is not kicking all those out, but rather, can you live with it? And if you can't, moving it over to the board rather than the stockholders, because that's a lot easier to get. Mm -hmm. And if you can't live with it at all, period, uh, then uh, you know that may be a sort of a critical issue on whether you want to take money in from that investor or not. And if you want to kick it out, then that's, that's a discussion. All right. So um, let's talk about the board then and board control. Sure. Um, do you see, I mean, generally, uh, the preferred stockholders at each class, uh, well, at least the initial classes, the A class and perhaps the B class, they, they get their own um, seat on the board. Is that correct? Uh, they would, yeah. So, so actually, it even goes deeper than that. It goes back to uh, series seed financing. So if you do a series seed preferred financing before you do a series A, uh, the lead investor uh, would require typically that, uh, that, uh, that uh, they have one seat on the board at least. Uh, typically, it'd be one at that stage. Um, uh, and sometimes, actually, in convertible note or safe financings, you find the same thing. Uh, so any investor wants to sort of be inside the company to monitor what's going on. And so you've got to be prepared for that at any, any point in time. Um, uh, you know, you've, you, you know and, and, and so the question is, how do you structure the board? How large should it be? How do you allocate uh, seats? Um, and something you didn't ask, but, but uh, you may want to anticipate that this is going to occur. And as the, uh, as the company grows over time, the board is, uh, is uh, going to uh, typically increase in size. And the founders take less and less of a material um, uh, 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 controlling position in the company, uh, potentially going forward. And so the founders may want to sort of build in their own rights to board seats. And, and they do that by giving themselves founder common stock where there are designated seats given to the founders. So rather than just have uh, uh, seats that are allocated to the founders in the uh, Series C round and Series A round, it's embedded into the stock owned by the founders. And so it's, it's more of a material stake and in, in, uh, in, in a position on the board as, uh, as matters go forward over time. And then the whole issue of founder stock is 
very controversial uh, even today, but it's becoming more, uh, more common than it has been in the past. It's a sort of a separate line of discussion that you and I could have at some point, mm -hmm. Dave, but, yeah. uh, but it all relates to this issue about board control. And I'd make uh, just two other observations. Uh, one is that early stage boards typically are, you know, before you get funded, it's, it's maybe one founder or three. Uh, as soon as you have an investor involved, typically it's a, it might be a three member board, probably three, you don't want to make it uh, five. And uh, you'd have one seat to the, uh, to the investors and then uh, two seats to the, uh, to the founders. Uh, it may be uh, uh, two and one, two to the founders, one to the investor, or it could be one, one, and one, which is a founder, an independent, and an investor. Typically, you don't find that because the swing vote then goes to the independent, and no founder wants to give up control that early in the uh, life of the company. Uh, when you do an, a, a series seed or a series A round, uh, the board might be five members. Uh, that's typical. And so the, uh, the breakdown would be two, two, and one. Let's say two seats to the common, two seats to the preferred, and one independent. Even that is, uh, you got to swing vote, vote to the independents. And so founders typically would like to control that. So the way you do it is probably two, two, and one, but the independent is, is selected by the founder, somebody friendly to them, uh, approved by the independent, by the independent uh, director, directors. Uh, uh, but, but really, you've got a three and two situation. And then as you get into the series B round and above, you have probably a seven member board. And the complaint changes based on dynamics and the financings at that point in time. Mm -hmm. the, um, it's interesting that the investors, um, one of the things that, that obviously you see with these uh, VC financings, the series A and B and so on is, they'll often bring in a CEO, um, maybe a CEO that has been, um, in residence at the investors um, uh, with the venture capital firm for a while, kind of waiting for a, 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 a startup to come along, and they they put yeah. the CEO in place, and uh, and so then they give the CEO a board seat um, as well as the, so the founders, the CEO, and the investors. But in in a way, I mean, because the uh, CEO is aligned uh, with the investors, um, then they really control that seat as well. Is that, that's a common thing that we see, right? Well, it's, uh, I wouldn't, it, it's common in more mature companies. Uh, uh, so, so what happens is, um, you know, the company meets, meets a, a certain um, level of maturity, it's, it's doing well, and Investors may require that a, a more experienced CEO come in to scale the company, take it to more of an operational um, platform, uh, which the founders themselves, uh, uh, either admittedly or not, uh, can't, uh, can't take the company to. So this may be a good thing or it may be a bad thing. It kind of depends on your perspective. You know, one of, one of the things I, uh, I, I discuss with my, uh, my founders uh, in companies that I work with early stages you know, what, what are your objectives? Do you, do you want to sort of ride this company to, uh, uh, to, to get the experience and the resume value for your next venture as well on uh, kind of running this as long as you can? Or do you, you know, what are your thoughts on stepping aside at some point? You have to get some clarity uh, from the people you're working with to get a sense of what they want to do. It's always, a, a, you know, a matter that would uh, realistically uh, be decided at, the, at that point in time when, Investors come in and make have that requirement, but if you don't want to do it, you got to put your foot down and say it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. You know, Zuckerberg mm -hmm. didn't have uh, uh, really the experience or credentials that he does now, 
mm-hmm. uh, 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 when he first started Facebook, right? And, uh, you know, I don't, I was not in those meetings when uh, discussions were had with investors about whether he would step aside or not. Uh, you know, but, uh, but you've got to have a clear sense of what you want to do and what you don't as a founder of a company. The other is that uh, a way to navigate this is you don't step aside, but you, uh, but you bring on a COO, somebody who's second to you, uh, who would uh, take instructions from you because you as a founder have the vision and the sense of whether you want to take this company and, and uh, you've got the passion and direction to do that. But the COO would basically make everything happen for you, reporting to you and to the board. Uh, so that is giving you the support and the guidance that you need, but it's not stepping aside. So there are ways to navigate this mm-hmm. where, where you don't have to make a decision one way or the other. Right. Okay, great. And um, uh, let's talk about anti-dilution rights. Um, I, I'm, I, from what I've seen, they're pretty much standardized on uh, the um, weighted average formula these days. Is that right? Yeah, and that's that's been the case for a long time. I mean, the, yeah. you know, the alternative to that is a ratchet uh, provision where, yeah. if uh, if shares are sold at a at a lower price, doesn't matter if you have one share sold at the lower price, the uh, the anti dilution trigger uh, is uh, is affected, and there's a adjustment of all of the common into preferred at that lower price, which is ridiculous. Which is, and that's that's why the uh, price based anti dilution was. Uh, that formula was put into place. And I'd say uh, it is the rare, the very rare financing where you find ratchet uh, provisions mm-hmm. right now. And if you see that, you can just run away from the financing unless the company is about to uh, crater and you, you have no choice. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, price base is the way, the way it works. You're right, fine. yeah, I just saw some statistics on this and it was about yeah. right up close to 100% of- uh, uh, That's right, uh, that's right, well, that's right. Okay, yeah. all right, good. Um, so uh, how about participation rights where the investor has to pay to play, play and they, they don't automatically get anti-dilution, they have to invest to buy more shares if they want. Yeah, so that's it's called a pay-to-play provision. And, and the way that works is that uh, in a uh, financing where new investors want the uh, other investors to follow on, uh, they will require in their term sheet a, a provision where if, uh, if investors don't invest their pro rata in the new round, then uh, their uh, preferred stock converts into common stock and they lose their preferential rights. Typically, that's the way it works. And it can be triggered either by new investors coming in or by, uh, by the board itself before it does a financing. So, so it, it's a way to sort of force investors to, uh, part, you know, to, to, uh, to invest in the company. Now, here's, here's the rub. Um, participation rights or a pay to play has to be approved by the people that are affected by the pay to play. <laughs> and so, it, and, and, and the way it typically works is that you need majority approval of the affected uh, stockholders. So um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the investors that want to invest for, let's say, for example, you've got 10 uh, preferred uh, investors in the company right now. And let's say that there's two large ones. There are, venture capital funds, and then you've got, uh, you've got smaller institutions or individuals that all bought preferred stock. And the two institutions may uh, control 50% of the vote. So they'll say, yeah, we'll approve a pay to play and everyone's got to come along. And what it, what it does is they then force the smaller investors to put more money in or get, get the conversion. And so they're mm-hmm. kind of screwed, uh, the smaller investors, because they don't have the votes to stop that from happening. 
Now, from the company's perspective, that's pretty good because if everyone comes up and quite honestly, if people don't come up and invest more pro rata into the next round, uh, then their preferred conversion to common, you don't have the preference from the company side, you got to pay on an exit of the company. So from the company perspective, it's good unless you brought in young investors or, or like family and friends and they all bought preferred mm. and they're part of the affected group. And so, you know, it, it works it depends what side of the fence you're on. Uh, you know, theoretically, it's great for the company, but if your relatives are in the deal uh, from the Series C round, for example, and in the Series A, it's a pay-to-play and your uncle loses his shares mm-hmm. if they convert from uh, preferred into common, you won't feel great about it. So mm-hmm. you've got to be careful how this works, quite honestly. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so, so the, the general trend is then that... Uh, they want the investors that come in in one round to to to, to pony up in future rounds and if they yeah and you, and you know what's interesting now so I, you know so we you know this Dave we we have uh, offices in the U.S. and in Europe what we're seeing with the offshore investors is they you know it's, uh, credit to them they don't want to pay to play to affect them and and so the issue for them is they're smaller funds usually to a U.S. funds and they don't want a U.S. fund cramming a pay to play on them. So they put into their current provisions, not only uh, uh, that there's a threshold requirement for a pay to play to be approved, uh, but uh, it just won't happen, period. It's like a covenant made to individual investors. So if you've got a preferred investor that has a smaller stake, uh, they just say, you know, we're excluded from any pay to play provision. Now, is this commonplace across the board? The answer is no, it's not. Is it, is it, an issue that comes up with offshore investors that uh, are sophisticated enough to know that this can happen to them. Yes, it is coming up. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, is it, and so then you say, so what's in the best interest of the company? Well, if you need the money now, uh, and if it's a smaller investor, you know, do you really need to pay to play to affect them uh, uh, as a, uh, as a, you know, a, a deterrent or, 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 or to get, you know, to, to address this. Uh, I mean, if you've got, if you've got to pay to play, uh, exclusion for a smaller investor, would that stop a, a new investor from coming in under a pay-to-play type financing? I think the answer is no. But if an investor sort of insists on it, you can address it again with uh, the investor that has the protection. But if I were the on the investor side, and we do a lot of investor side representation. You put it in place now and you can give it up later if you want to do it. But mm-hmm. uh, it is an issue that comes up, yes, on the investor side. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and then I'm assuming that uh, the investors want co-sale rights and drag-along rights uh, in the event of a, anyone else selling shares or co-sale rights when they want to sell their shares. Yeah, they, they, they do. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, it's so the, so the way co-sale rights work, uh, and I, you know this, you probably mm. uh, put this into your instruction uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 discussion, but uh, uh, if... Uh, uh, if a founder wants to sell his or her shares, uh, then investors have a right to co-sell their shares to the same buyer. Now, the reality is I, I, I've never seen, and I've been doing this for a long time, I've never seen that actually happen, but it's standard in all documents. You'll, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, there's, there is an exclusion uh, for a certain number of shares uh, sold by founders to allow them to sell shares so that they can raise money to, uh, to take care of life's uh, uh, events, such as uh, 
you know, sending a child to school or a, a medical emergency or something like this where uh, they need to cash out some of their equity to take care of, of matters. And that's good for the company because uh, it, it uh, allows an executive to address that and not be distracted. So the carve out typically is about 5%. So the, the idea would be that if a founder owns, let's say, I don't know, a million shares, then 5% of those shares can be sold, not subject to the current sale. All proceeds go to the, to the, uh, to the founder, uh, 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 sold to a third party, and no preferred can sell its shares on top of or in, in, uh, in replacement of the, of the founder's shares. So that's the way you kind of navigate that. So the negotiation is on what's the carve out and what does that look like? But you shouldn't expect the co-sale rights won't, uh, won't apply at all. Drag along is something that everybody wants. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter what side of the fence you sit on because you're not going to get a liquidity event if there are minor investors that stand in the way that prevent the company from being sold. That affects everybody. Now, you can say, well, why does that matter? Because under corporate law, you need uh, a, a majority approval of the stockholders to, uh, to get a transaction approved and completed. The answer is... Buyers all the time require a higher threshold. They either require, let's say, 90% approval of the stockholders or they require 100%. They don't care what corporate law says. They don't want to have any stockholders out there that have a dissenter rights, which is a right they, uh, uh, stockholders have uh, under statute to question the price uh, by filing a lawsuit with a, with a court as part of the term sheet on the buy side. Did you require that 100% go along? Now, anticipating that this may be a, an issue, when investors invest in to a company um, uh, prior to an exit, obviously, they'd want to um, address this. And that they do that with a drag along. So all of the major stockholders are sort of signed on to this. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, what's the trigger on the drag along that makes everybody vote in favor of that? And the trigger typically is approval of the board and investors require their approval as well, majority of, of, the, of the investors. And if you're a founder, you, you've got to throw yourself in that as well. So, so that formula, so what you'd say in that case as a founder is, well, that requires our approval as well. Majority of the common, majority of the preferred, majority of the board, and then we're okay with it because then we have a, we have a right. We, you know, we, we have a veto right ourselves as founders. And so that, 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 that trigger formula is really important. The idea of a drag along is good for everybody. The question is, uh, you know, who's in that net that's dragged along to vote in favor? And typically it's officers, directors, 10% uh, uh, stockholders, and actually even 1% stockholders, 1% or more. That's the standard. But then the formula on what is the trigger is, is key. And founders have to make sure they're included in, in that, uh, that trigger definition. How much power do the founders have? I mean, they, can they actually veto a sale? Uh, only if they are excluded from a drag along. But now they could say they yeah. could say we're you know we're, we're not going to go along as a key employees. Uh, and, you know, so the, uh, you know it is it is uh, usually the case that a uh, a buyer will say we're we're buying you know we're buying the company is going concern or if it's an asset sale so we're going to buy contracts we're going to buy IP we're going to buy revenue and we're going to buy the people as well we're going to buy their contracts right. Uh, so the key key employees have to come along. And so you could say a founder is going to say, well, I'm not going to come along and I'm going to stand against this. And I've never seen that happen, quite honestly. If, if the mm -hmm. price is attractive enough, everyone's going to go along. Yeah. But as a founder, you don't want to be sitting there without some kind of contractual right. Mm -hmm. So the answer is pragmatically, you probably do. If you're against it and you're key to the business, 
Mm -hmm. uh, you've got leverage, but you really wanted to have it embedded in contract in some respect. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, okay. And then um, how about things like redemption rights? Uh, do investors uh, get the rights to withdraw their funds? That's nope. very rare. <laughs> I, I, I can't yeah. say it as a blanket statement. Uh, typically not. So, so redemption no. rights, that's kind of a hold back from before. I mean, I would say in, in a more mature companies, you do have redemption rights. And so, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, private equity that's now doing venture uh, in companies or you've got, uh, you know, um, uh, more institutional investors or strategic investors that want to get out uh, um, in, in the future that are not venture capital funds that are trying to come up with, uh, you know, founder friendly terms and you may put it in there. And then the question is, what does it look like? And so uh, from the company side, you know, you, you want to push it out. So you'd say no redemption before five years. And, you know, if somebody uh, 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 puts their shares back to the company in a redemption, uh, we, the company, can pay it back over two years on, on a semi-annual base, basis. So you kind of drag it out. So that really is a seven-year redemption rather than five years. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and then the question is, what's the redemption uh, uh, price? Is, is it... Is it the amount of money that went in, or is it that plus a, you know, like an eight percent compound dividend that adds to the redemption? It's kind of this discussion we just had in liquidity preference, and and you negotiate all those individual pieces. So so from the company side, you, you your first reaction is, hell no, we're not going to do a redemption. Uh, but if you got to do it because the company's not doing well and your investors require you need that money, and the question is uh, how long is it? Um, what's the redemption price? And when do you pay it back after redemption has been triggered? So those, those are the levers that you've got to, to negotiate. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. Okay. So um, when you're, um, you as a law firm and as a lawyer, you represent um, uh, startup companies, you represent uh, investment funds sometimes. Yeah. Um, are, are you seeing um, the founders having their own representation? And what are your thoughts on that? Uh, not early stage, but later stage. Um, uh, so a mid-stage company, um, uh, uh, it is, uh, it's not always the case, it, but it's, uh, it's sometimes the case that, uh, that um, individual members of the management team as a group will hire a lawyer to represent them. So, so it is, I've never seen the case where you've got a lawyer representing the CEO, another one representing the vice president of engineering, a third one representing, um, I don't know, the COO. That doesn't happen. You know, so you'd find one lawyer representing all of them. And typically- Representing the common stockholders. Uh, well, it's representing, yeah, no. It's more representing uh, the position of officers uh, as a mm -hmm. subset of the, of the holders of common stock. I mean, the, the, the representatives of the common stockholders are, that's company council, right? That's what they do. Uh, and, and company council represents everybody that's part of the existing uh, uh, equity base, uh, capital base, as of the time of that new financing coming in. Um, what we're talking about uh, right now, I think, is, is senior leadership in the company that may have issues with respect to their employment, respect to uh, terms that affect them individually, Restrictions on them on co-sale rights, for example, or their carve out or, you know, uh, issues about their employment that relate to the financing, uh, their position on the board, all of that is sort of a bundle of rights. And that's not common uh, to all of the common stockholders. It's specific to the uh, to the executives. 
And there you find sometimes with mezzanine stage companies that there is counsel representing all of like the management team. But even that's unusual. So, so, so I would say it happens. It happened. If it does happen, it happens with more mature companies. Um, but it is not, it's not a common thing. Right. I mean, it really comes down to if the interests of the, uh, of those officers are aligned with the shareholders and the people that have the ability to make the ultimate decisions. Um, yeah. Now, now I'll tell you where it's more, more common is in an exit event because there, you know, you've got this issue of the waterfall, where, where does the money go? And, and there may be uh, different opinions on the interpretation of, of the, uh, the charter documents of the company relating to this, uh, certain rights that the that, uh, members of the uh, uh, management team want to protect with respect to uh, uh, carrying those rights forward with the new uh, the new buyer. Um, you know, there are issues about conflict between uh, the executive team members that are supposed to be acting in the, in the best interests of the company and all uh, all uh, stockholders and but their own rights, quite honestly, and then they they have every right to. Uh, to think about what it, what what, what the, the impact of the new transaction will have on them individually, and so for that uh, that that specific set of issues that relate to them alone in an exit event, it is that it's actually very common to have separate counsel representing the uh, the executive team, mm-hmm. and that's where you find it not in, not in financing but in exit. Yeah, event. yeah, because uh, in many cases they could be losing their jobs when the company gets acquired, and so yeah, have- yeah, I, I, that and yeah, a whole range of things. That's correct. Right. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Are you, what are you seeing as trends? Are there any new trends in financings? Um, I know you mentioned earlier as, as, as Series Seed. Are they standardized as well? These they days? are. So they are. So there's uh, there's Series Seed documents, uh, uh, which uh, which date back. Uh, shoot, I think you're talking eight to ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were f- first put out uh, by the Fenwick and West Law Firm, I think. Uh, they're standard now across the in- industry. Uh, you know, there's, for example, SAFE was put out by Y Combinator. That's a standard yeah. documentation as well. Uh, uh, series C documentation, uh, not Series C, but Series A, B, C, D. That's all NVCA, which is National Venture Capital Association. So they've got their templates that have been adopted across the industry um, uh, broadly. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of your question about uh, where our funding's going, I think you've got this, uh, this, this, this convergence on these standard documents that are used at different stages of, uh, of uh, different financing at different stages in the life of, of the company. So you're not finding sort of these, these weird one-off um, funding uh, agreements uh, uh, with, with, uh, with mainstream investors. You are in situations where the company has gone through a restructuring, reorganization. There's a a radical change in the capital base, and all of that is done uh, typically to sort of a right size and adjust the uh, the company based on evaluation and whether it's doing well or not. But uh, uh, that that uh, modeling of the capitalization table is separate and aside from the funding documents and terms themselves. Um, uh, you know, things that I'm seeing more and more is there's a lot of Strategic investors that are becoming uh, that are active early staging companies, um, and, uh, uh, and and investments from strategic investors are uh, uh, combined with distribution agreements or co-development agreements or some kind of strategic alliance between those investors and the company. And this is a good thing. And then the issue is, do you have those agreements put in place before the financing or after the, after the financing as a covenant between the companies to kind of get this all done? 
But strategic investors, they want more than just the, the investment into the company and seeing the, uh, the appreciation of that themselves. And companies themselves want, want a strategic player to kind of get them into market opportunities or uh, into secure supply arrangements or whatever makes sense uh, to, uh, uh, to solidify the, the base of business going forward. So those uh, strategic uh, types of arrangements are becoming uh, quite common all the time. And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and having actually a, a mixed syndicate of financial and strategic investors is the, is the uh, objective of many companies. And, and, and because you get, you really get leverage on, the, on, the, on, the, on, on just the, the, the equity money coming in itself. Mm-hmm. You may find uh, arrangements where financings are combined with a venture debt facility that's provided by one of the investors. Uh, uh, through either a commercial bank or a lending arm uh, or, or, or affiliate that the uh, equity investor has, that's, uh, uh, that's uh, beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then one thing that I'm seeing a lot of right now are secondary sales. And so with uh, mid-stage and more mature companies, and you, you, you know, it's, it's in the press all the time, but it's absolutely the case. Uh, a lot of investors and, uh, and a lot of the members of the executive team have some right to sell some portion of their shares um, uh, directly to the new investors coming in um, uh, as part of the funding package. So, for example, a $20 million financing, you might have $3 million set aside to make some kind of buyout of existing shares uh, from uh, certain specified persons in the company. And $17 million is allocated in that example uh, to working capital uh, for the company moving forward. And the question then is, what's the price of the, uh, of the buyout of, those, of, the, of the existing common shares? Is it equal to the preferred or is it some discount to that? Typically, it's a discount. Who is included in that pool? Um, and how much can, uh, uh, is allocated among the different members of, uh, of that pool? Um, and so this secondary market has become quite large, actually, wow. um, as, uh, as, uh, as, as it's been publicized. And so that's, that's becoming more of a you know, standard uh, in, in mid-stage and later-stage financings. Wow. And that's all um, allowed by yeah. the SEC these days. Well, they're all accredited investors. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because these, these, these are these are all these are. I mean, there's no public solicitation of shares. Uh, right. This is a private solicitation, and uh, 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 by the existing stockholders as part of the term sheet. So you you know you've got let's say you've got five executives, and, and they all want to sell some portion of their shares. And so it's a negotiation uh, in the term sheet stage with the new investors coming in. That's all private. And then you can say, well, uh, are these folks uh, conflicted because they're trying to sell their shares? And what about everybody else and their duties, fiduciary duties to, uh, to the broader stockholder base? And typically the logic that supports that is, well, there's some liquidity that actually uh, 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 allows for um, uh, adjustment for under market compensation and allowing people not to get distracted where all their net wealth is, is sort of built into the company. And uh, so, so then they're not going to make bad decisions. And so the logic would be that if you give some amount of liquidity that takes pressure off of individuals um, uh, uh, for their personal financial planning and they can focus on the company and take the risk of proportionate to what investors expect them to, uh, to take. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of sense and logic to that. Um, but that's yeah. the reason for it. So as Mark is seeing, together with his colleagues in the White Summers Law Firm, standardization of investment terms seems to be taking place, at least in Silicon Valley. 
and generally this is all good news for the entrepreneur. The National Venture Capital Association model legal documents are available from our Silicon Valley Business School knowledge base and they're part of our Raising Finance for Startups course. So you can see the terms you're likely to be offered by venture investors, at least the ones that adept, adopt the NVCA documents. The series seed documents Mark referred to are there as well, but they're really aimed at angel investors, which we'll talk about in another podcast. As Mark mentioned, the liquidation preferences in the NVCA term sheet template is a 1x return with the option of adding various dividends that increase the liquidation preference above the 1x level. If your investor is adopting the NVCA standardized terms, you'll likely see this level of liquidation preference. But if your investor is outside of Silicon Valley, you might find your lawyer has to negotiate some of the more aggressive terms. At least following this podcast, you'll understand how the two-tiered preferred stock common stock structure basically works, and you'll have some familiarity with the terms you might want to negotiate when raising finance from venture investors. You'll find more information on this topic in our Raising Finance course, particularly the preferred stock and investment terms section. You'll find other information, including dozens of courses, thousands of videos and reading materials on our Silicon Valley Business School website at svbs.co. You're welcome to join me in my Silicon Valley Business School chat room where I can answer your questions and help you navigate your startup towards success. Hope you'll join us for future podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe so you get new episodes as and when they're released. And please rate us in your podcast player as this will help us get the word out to entrepreneurs and the other people we're trying to help with this podcast series. That's it for today. Hope you tune in to the next Silicon Valley Trends, the podcast for innovators and entrepreneurs.